If I asked you all to have a guess, if I took a poll, am I ringing here? Hello? Hello? Still ringing? Uh, hello, Jimmy. Is that better? Can you all hear me? Yes, there we go. I feel very echoey. That's okay. Am I okay to just turn this off? Can everyone hear me if I turn it off? It's fine. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, I've been told I'm not allowed to turn it off. But it's fine. Um, if I um, took a poll of everybody in the UK um, and I asked them what the most well known parable is, does anyone want to give me. <laughs> I may just sit down. That would be a lot easier this morning. Um, Right, let's pretend, let's pretend that none of you have seen what is about to happen. Um, I'm going to erase, this is all based on a lie anyway, because I haven't actually done this poll, but that's fine. Um, if I asked you to take a poll of what you thought of, I'm going to have to turn it, I'm sorry Colin, I'm disobeying, I'm clearly not under good authority. Um, yeah, if I asked you to take a poll um, and decide what the most well-known parable is, can you give me some suggestions of what you think you would come back with? Anybody? It's marathon. Thank you. I was hoping someone would say the good Samaritan. Um, anything else? Feeding of the 5,000. Come on, someone's going to say it. The prodigal son. There we go. Who said that? Thank you, Ruth. Thank you for contributing very well there. Um, yeah, I think it's probably between the good Samaritan and the prodigal son. I'll be very honest. It, it's too much effort to pull everyone in the UK, so I asked three people. Um, but I'm going to go with the prodigal son. There we go. Uh, being probably one of the most well-known parables uh, for those of us who have been in church for any amount of time. Uh, it's very much drilled into our heads. Um, but what I'm less sure about um, is whether I, certainly, certainly for myself, but whether we really live it out sometimes. Whether we really live out the culture of knowing we are forgiven. And so I want to start this morning on a very happy note. Um, I want to ask you, is there anything you feel really guilty or ashamed about? Uh, this morning, okay, is there anything in your life that just makes you feel unworthy? Um, maybe it's something that people know about, maybe it's something people don't know about, maybe it's a one-off thing that happened one time, maybe it's just something that's ongoing that you're wrestling with that you just feel like is the worst of you. Okay, whatever it is, I just want you to think about that thing for a minute and, uh, and, and question in your head, does it in any way define you? Okay, does it maybe change the way you think about yourself, maybe the way that you think about um, other people? Does it influence what actions you may or may not take, what opportunities you may or may not take because of how you feel about yourself or something that's happened in the past? Um, and I think if any of you are anything like me, the answer to those questions will be yes. And I just want you to hold that in your mind because as a church we've been looking a bit at culture. So we've been looking at the things that sort of underpin who we are. Uh, and every week we've been focusing on a different one. And this week we are focusing on the second chance culture. Um, and I think if I asked you all to put your hands up, everyone would, hear, would, would say, you know, second chances, they're a good thing. On an intellectual level, we know that we have second chances. We know that this is good. But what I want us to explore is actually, are we truly living that out? Do we really believe it? Or are we still living with guilt or shame or feelings of just not being good enough? Sometimes, and, and do we let this affect how we act and how we do things? And so we're going to explore this through the parable of, uh, as we've identified, thank you very much, uh, the prodigal son. Uh, and you can find it in Luke 15 if you want to follow along in your Bibles, verses 11 to 31. Uh, but I want us to start reading just before this. Because I think the key to understanding, we're, we're way ahead, you, you are smashing it today. Um, the, the, the key to understanding this uh, parable is it comes uh, just after another parable, the lost sheep. Um, 
And these two parables are being delivered to a very specific audience. Um, and I think the key to maybe understanding and getting our heads around it is understanding the audience that it's pitched at. Um, so if we look at verses 1 to 2, smashed it. Um, and it says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners, 1 and 2, um, were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees, 3, and the teachers of the law, kind of also 3, uh, muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so, can you just raise your hand for me this morning if you love paying taxes? <laughs> Unsurprisingly, not a single hand goes up. Um, I didn't expect many to go up there, but actually, if you look at it in this country, taxes probably aren't that bad. I'm going to break it down. They pay for our NHS. They pay for our education system. I don't like paying my council tax, but it gets my bins taken out every Thursday. Um, I think, although when we look at our pay slips, tax can be a little bit frustrating, we would all acknowledge tax is a good thing because it pays for the society that we are blessed to be a part of. And so I think when we read passages like this and we see um, words like tax collectors, um, we probably don't really assign a huge amount of weight to it in our kind of 21st century democratic culture. Um, but do you all remember Zacchaeus, the guy in the Bible, little man up a tree? Um, everyone remember Zacchaeus? Yes, when Jesus, uh, he was a tax collector. And when Jesus invited Zacchaeus to his house, a whole city went into uproar. Absolute uproar. And why is that? And I think it is, if I've got a little map for you here, um, Rome at this time, this time that we're talking, um, essentially rules the entire world. From England up there, all the way across to India, um, pretty much. And, and nowadays, that's not so much of an issue, because we've got the internet, we've got phones, we've got planes, we've got all these wonderful things. But back then, how do you govern an area of that size? Okay, If, say, you're based over in Rome over here and someone kicks off over there, it could take you a year just to get to them if there's some little rebellion going on. How do you, how do you govern in that circumstance? And you need two things. You need um, a huge amount of fear to make sure no one challenges you. And you also need a massive, 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 massive army. Okay? How do you pay for an army? Taxes. Taxes. Good. Um, so historical records show us that the Romans were brutal. Okay, they were horrendous. There are accounts where they would sack entire cities down and just to send a message, they would crucify hundreds and thousands of people along the roadside just so that everyone walking into this place could see their power and their force. There is, um, to my knowledge, no modern moral equivalent that really matches it. Imagine in, in kind of Manchester, we're, we're sitting here living our nice, comfortable lives and we're overthrown by this superpower. And this superpower, they come and they, they torture, they rape, um, they uh, murder all the men, they crucify the children, um, and there is no laws to stop them. There's nothing, you know, we can do about it, no court you can take them to, because they have got power over everything. This is the situation for places that have been occupied by the Romans. And then imagine there is someone in your town, someone that you were previously safe friends with, someone that you knew pretty well, um, who actually is going round collecting money to prop up this regime. Someone who maybe you used to trust, used to be part of your intimate friendship circle, and they're going around and they're paying for your friends to be raped or persecuted, your children to be crucified. Okay, this is the tax collector in our story. And for the longest time, I just I didn't really get why the Bible makes such a big deal out. I'm like, come on, Jesus, like the NHS is a good thing, like, yeah, tax collectors, but you could have gone a step further there. But actually, if 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 you look at it. You can see why Jesus sitting with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, was such a big deal. And this is Jesus' audience for this story. They are so hated. They are the worst of the worst. 
Okay, but they aren't the only ones Jesus is talking to. If we just go back, um, Jesus is also talking to sinners. And again, 21st century, we kind of, we all just assume, oh, we're all sinners. So that could be any of us. Um, but back then, sinners was probably uh, more a term that referred to a class of people. Um, so it's maybe those who were born disabled, those who were deformed. Um, you'll remember in um, John chapter 9, uh, where they go up to Jesus and like, Jesus, who sinned that this man ended up? born disabled or this man ended up being born blind or whatever it might be Um, and it also included those who had um, professions of um, ill repute shall we say so like prostitution um, or so forth so there were a specific group of people that were seen as society's lowest of the lowest of the low so this is Jesus' crowd we've got tax collectors um, the most hated people who I also probably imagine hated themselves okay I, I, I don't know but Actually, maybe they're in that position because they've got no other way to feed their family. In a place that's been overthrown, that's economy has absolutely collapsed, maybe that's the only way you can feed your children by betraying everyone else that you know. And you feel horrible about that and you hate yourself. Either way, I can't imagine it's a fun job. Um, and then you've got the sinners who are the lowest of the low and they are looked down and they, and they probably have self-esteem that is somewhere near <laughs> rock bottom because they have spent their entire lives being told that they are nothing, that they are worth nothing, um, that they are nobody. And I just wonder, again, spitballing, if there is anyone in the room who is maybe feels in that position sometimes. Either feeling very hated, hating yourself because of something you've done, feeling like your self-esteem is rock bottom because someone or, or somewhere, some culture has told you that you are nothing and that you are nobody. That's our group number one. Um, but then we've also got a group here, the Pharisees and the Scribes, which are mentioned. So, sorry, jump back. Um, the Pharisees and the Scribes, and they are basically the religious folk of the day. And when it comes to religiousness, um, I'm sorry to break it, but they are better than you. Um, so they will have memorised the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That's about 80,000 words. Um, I know for most of us, when we start reading our Bibles and we get to something like Numbers and we see the list, we'll maybe make it a chapter or two. Then we're like, no, nah, give me some Acts, give me some Galatians, give me something easier. They were not like that. They would memorise every single one of the rules of the Old Testament. They would follow them to the letter. Um, these are the people who would only take a certain amount of steps on a Sunday so that they couldn't be accused of not resting. This is the level that they would go to. Um, and, and they think because they get up at 5am in the morning um, and because they pray and they don't watch illegal movies or use someone else's Netflix and they turn up to community group every week, um, they raise their hands up in church and they tie 10% and they regularly fast and they listen to sermon podcasts on every car journey. You know, whatever the modern equivalent rules are, they think because they do all of those things that they've got it nailed. Okay, they follow it all and they think they're doing better than most. Actually, I've got this down because I'm following these rules. So that's who is listening to Jesus. We've got tax collectors and sinners over on this side who have been shunned and downtrodden their entire life. And then we've got Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law who have spent their whole life thinking they've got it nailed and they've done everything right. So I just want you to hold these two audiences over in your head and we're going to get to our story. So can we jump on? Um, I forget, I never do these right. Right, um... Jesus continued, um, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living, doing it his own way. Um, After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Okay, so one is three one. We've got tax collectors and sinners, and we've got Pharisees. These are the two people who are hearing this. Um, what are they both thinking? That is the question I'm asking. And I think the first group, your, your, your tax collection, your they're thinking, actually, I get that. I can really relate to the fact that I just long to fill my stomach. No one is giving me anything. I am just feeling at the lowest of the lowest of the low. Jesus, this is hard. I get that you're telling this story about me. Jesus, I hear this. And then you've got the Pharisees and the teacher of the law who are probably sitting there thinking, actually, yeah, that's not me. That's those sinners over there. That's the sinners and the, 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 the horrendous lowest of the low. You know, Jesus is going to get him. He's going to tell them a story and he's going to tear them apart. Go on, Jesus. You go and tell them. You tell them how messed up they are. You go and get them. Um, and I just wonder, um, you don't have to put your hands up to this, but have you ever sat listening to a sermon and wished your friend or your family member or your partner or, or a person you've had a disagreement with, oh, I wish they were listening to this. You know, Sam, oh, I wish Sam was listening to this sermon because, you know, he needs correction on this issue. I know he struggles with it. And I just think if Sam heard this, Sam would be, Sam would be sorted and all would be okay. Um, I won't ask you to put your hands up, but have you ever thought like that? Because um, if you have... Um, we're being Pharisees. Um, self-righteousness is not a good thing. Uh, and it can be very easy for us to slip into Pharisee mindset. Um, probably because it's so much easier to look at the problems with someone else than it is to address our own problems. It is so much easier for me to look at Mike and say, oh, I'm going to uh, pick up on this in Mike. Because then it means I just don't have to look at the sin inside myself and the mess inside myself. And I can feel much better. And so we've got two groups. We've got the group of like, yeah, this is me. I feel rubbish. Jesus, I get that you're talking to me. And then you've got the group that's like, this isn't me. <laughs> this is them. This is the lowest of the low. This is the people who struggle with this. I don't struggle with this. Neither of those are good perspectives. So, let's carry on. Luke 15. When, it came to, uh, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Okay, now what's he doing here? He is preparing his apology speech. Um, I don't know if many of you as a teenager had to do this often. I had to do this very often. Uh, On my walk home, preparing my apology speech to my mum and dad. Um, And it is a time, uh, a depressing amount actually, my teenage years. Um, It is a time of a lot of self-reflection. And if you come back to our two crowds, what are they hearing in this? You've got the tax collectors and the sinners and they're thinking, okay, I get it. So you told me, I get that this story is about me and maybe I have to become a bit of a slave. I've got to go and do something to work off my debts. I've got to go and find a way to make up for all my mess and all the pain and all the rubbish because clearly I'm a sinner. And I've ruined it all, so I need to go and make up for this. That's what they're hearing, because we, we listen to this story knowing the ending. They listen to this story not having a clue about the ending until it gets there. So they're hearing, okay, that's what I need to do. I need to go pay off my debts, I need to become someone's slave, and I need to fix it. Pharisees and the teachers of the law, yes, Jesus, make them pay. Show them what they need to do to make this better. We're all laughing, but we've definitely thought this in church sometimes. Our oh, sons really hurt me, they need to do something to make it better. 
Okay? Jesus, show them the consequences of their sin and their poor choices. Show them how difficult it is to be like us and keep the rules, you know? Bring it home, Jesus. Show them how bad they are. Convict them. What's it going to cost them, Jesus? Show them what it's going to cost them. You can kind of hear them saying that almost in your head. Because they do not know the twist that is coming. And we get to the twist. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, he kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Um, about two years ago, I'm not exactly sure. Some of you might remember it. I did a preach um, at Withington, as we were then, I think. don't know. Um, on uh, Romans 3 and the doctrine of sin. Um, and quite why I thought this was a good idea, I don't know. But I thought it would be a good idea in the week before the sermon to write a list of all the sins I committed that week. Um, and then share them with you in the sermon to, to kind of work through this process. Uh, and I, I shared at the time that I didn't even make it through Monday morning. Monday morning before I was too ashamed to share that list in front of church. I didn't even make it through Monday morning before I'd already lost track of all the sins I had committed that week. Okay. And I remember really, really struggling with that at the time. And, and, and sin can be crippling if you let it. Absolutely crippling. And I just want you to bring your minds back to the question I asked you at the start about that worst thing that you've ever done or that you feel about yourself. And actually the guilt and the shame um, and the, the feeling of not being good enough is such a powerful weapon that is used to attack us. Do not underestimate the power of those things because they do not come from God. But they can hold real power over us if we let them. And it is easy to get to that place, to feel like, oh my goodness, I'm just the worst of the worst. I'm at my lowest ebb, and so I need to do something to work off what I've done. I need to do something to make this better, because, you know, I need to pay penance. I need to make this right, and somehow, because I just feel so rubbish, and the only way I can make this feel better is if I, you know, try, I'm going to pray five times a day. I'm going to not read three chapters in the morning, I'm going to read four chapters in the morning. And go into all these things that we can try and do to make ourselves feel better. If you are here this morning and you are feeling that guilt and that shame and that regret or that hurt or any of that, I just want you to look at that top verse. Um, There is so much power in that. His father saw him when he was a long way off and he ran to him. God's response when you are feeling like that is to run to you and throw a massive party. Okay, it is insane. The, the, the son took the father's money. He squanders everything of the father. He belittles and dishonors the father's name. Uh, and the father is so overjoyed, so overjoyed, he doesn't even mention any of the things that the son says in his apology speech. He just takes the weight of everything that's happened on himself. You know, when we get our heads around grace, it is scandalous, it is outrageous, it is massively overwhelming. Okay, the father could very legitimately said, oh yeah, yeah, totally welcome you back, but actually you've taken half of all my money. You need to pay some of that back, so we'll set up a bit of a thing where you can come and work for him a bit and you can earn it back. I think that would have been entirely reasonable. Entirely He's taken half of all his money, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't even mention that. 
He is so compassionate and so gracious. He doesn't even acknowledge what the son has done wrong. He just says, actually, let's go to the party. Let's get the robes. Uh, let's get the fat calf, a good steak. Um, all I want for you, my younger son, is to know that I love you, that I welcome you back, that I'm putting my arms around you. The ring and the robe are really significant. Actually, I'm giving you me. I'm giving you my status. I'm giving you my relationship. He takes it all on himself. Um, if you read Galatians 1, uh, verse 15, we see how it pleases God. pleases God so much to reveal himself to us. God delights in us as his children. God loves it. He absolutely loves it when you realise that and you come back to him. He doesn't want you to make up for what you've done. Because we can't. He just wants you to come back to him. You know, there is parties and there's parties. The older son, as we're going to read in a moment, um, we're not there yet, but the older son comes back from a field and he hears music and dancing from a long way off. Now, this is uh, the time before massive bassy speakers and all, all that kind of jazz. To hear music and dancing from a long way off, that was some party. Okay, it is kicking off. This party is out of control. Okay, God loves it when you turn back to him. Absolutely loves it. There are parties in heaven, the likes of which we cannot even imagine when we turn back to him. And so what's stopping us? What is stopping us turning back to God? Uh, And I think verse 21 gives us that clue. And I know this is one I find a real challenge sometimes. Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It is so easy to let that guilt and that shame stop us from actually just coming back to Jesus and saying, actually, God, I'm sorry, I want that relationship with you again. Actually, what I need to do is maybe I need to pray a bit first and then I need to go and do this nice thing and I need to read six chapters of my Bible because four chapters wasn't enough and I need to do this and I need to do this and I need to do this and then I can come back to God. I need to make this right and this right and this right and then I can come back to God. I can need to sort this sin out and then God can forgive me. It is so easy to slip into, I am not worthy. And if you are here this morning and you you feel that, you feel you've messed up and you feel you are no longer worthy, I am just praying that you know the incredible, absolutely incredible power of grace. Okay, because God knows that there is nothing we can do to make our sin and our selfishness and our turning away from him better. Absolutely nothing. And so what he did was he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to take away our sin so that all we have to do is turn back to him. That is it. Nothing more, nothing less. Turn back around like this younger son in the parable and we are with Christ. The the, the phrase that the Bible uses, I love, it is that we are in him. It doesn't matter that we aren't worthy when we are in him. And I do love a good practical demonstration. And so one of the things that I, I think I used to struggle with quite a lot. This is my sin. It's a very artistic drawing of my sin, as you can see. I wasn't born for creativity. Um, One of the things that I used to really, really struggle with is that when we turn back to Jesus, our sin is still there. Okay, we're still going to be messing up. And actually, also really, really difficult, the consequences of our sin are still there. If I hurt someone, I can be forgiven, but they're still going to be hurt. It doesn't all get fixed magically. And I used to really struggle with, if my sin is still there, how has Jesus forgiven me? I don't get it because the sin is still there. And one of the really, really powerful things that we see is that the Bible tells us that we are in Christ. And so our sin is in Christ. So Jesus looks at us. That sin is still there. But God looks at you and all he sees is Jesus. None of you can see it. None of you can see it right now. It's still there. And that's exactly the way God is looking at us. And that is why when we stand there and we feel so unworthy, 
so unworthy. Actually, we aren't worthy. That is exactly right. We aren't worthy. But that doesn't matter because Jesus is worthy. And when God looks at us, he does not see that sin and that mess. If I, if I open this book up, that sin is still there. And the consequences of the sin will still be there. If you go and kill somebody, they will stay dead. Okay? Just because you're forgiven, they're not going to come back to life. If you hurt somebody, often they will still be hurt. We are in a broken and a fallen world. But Jesus has covered the price of your sin. Unless you drop it. Um, pick it back up. <laughs> um, Jesus has covered the price of your sin. So that actually when God looks at you, you are in Christ. He doesn't see that mess and that hurt and that pain and all the stuff that makes you feel unworthy. All he sees is Jesus, who is the most worthy. And that is why at CCM, but actually in all churches, we believe in a second chance culture. Because every person in this room, we are broken. Um, And our identity is not in that brokenness. Um, If You know when we sin and we mess up, the rule was that you couldn't leave worship or you couldn't host a community group, or you couldn't preach, or you couldn't do welcome, or you couldn't do any of those things, we would have a completely empty church. In church, yes, we all love Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we can remove our sin, and that we can remove the consequences of our sin. Okay, we are still going to hurt each other at times. We are still going to maybe say and do things we shouldn't at times. We all get it wrong at times. And so... Our job as a church, our job as a body of people, is actually to work really, really, really hard to see each other the way God sees us. Not to focus on the mess and the sin, but actually seeing Christ in each other. And that means an awful lot of grace, it means compassion and patience, and it means an awful lot of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and so on and so on chances. That is why we have a second chance culture. We have compassion and patience with each other when we get it wrong. We don't judge each other or shoot each other down um, as we see the older brother in a moment. Actually, we believe in second chances. Let's finish our story. Um, I won't read all of this, um, but essentially what happens, to give you the synopsis, is the older brother comes back and he is annoyed. Uh, He is not happy because he has done all the right things. He has followed all the rules and the younger brother hasn't. Yet the father is still celebrating the younger brother. Okay, he's annoyed because he thinks he's done better. You know, he turned up to every prayer meeting. He listened to every sermon podcast CCM has ever done. Every single one, ever. The younger brother hasn't even listened to one of them. And yet the younger brother is being celebrated with a massive, massive party. And it's because he has not understood the concept of what God gives us is nothing to do with what we deserve. It is in no way related to what we deserve. Because if we got what we deserved, none of us would have that relationship with Jesus. He is the Pharisee of our story, essentially, because he followed the rules. He thinks he is better. And we can laugh about it, but I think we can all slip in and out of being the younger and the older brother at times in church. And what I really love is the bit where he comes and he asks one of the servants and he comes and talks to one of the servants about the younger brother. And I think that's a really good sign. If we're more interested in critiquing and criticising other people in church and talking to other people about that than we are about coming to Jesus in prayer and praying for that person who is struggling, then we're probably struggling with older brotherness. It's kind of that self-righteousness all over again. 
Rebellion against God can come in many different forms. It can be going off on one for a life of just doing it our way, like the younger brother. But it can also be strictly adhering to legalism, like the older brother. And I do think we can slip in and out of faith. And I just think as a church, um, sometimes we can actually find it easier to show grace to the younger brother sins. You know, this person's uh, a murderer, or they broke into my car, or they did this and that, and I know I should forgive them for that, because, you know, the Bible tells me I should forgive them for that. But actually, when it comes to maybe the older brothers, the very, very stubborn people, maybe they're a bit difficult, or they're self-righteous, or whatever it is, oh, grace for them is not quite so much, because they, they didn't deserve forgiveness, you know, they're just an annoying person. Um, and actually, again, we're not getting that what God gives us is nothing to do with what we deserve. Absolutely nothing. And so please know this morning, there is nothing you can do to separate you from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. Even if you are as bad as a tax collector, the lowest of the lowest of low, hated by the entire society because you have betrayed everyone, committed the worst sins possible, you're propping up murder and rape and torture and destruction. Actually, God still welcomes you with open arms. He has stood running to you, running to you, running to you, not waiting for you to sort it out, not asking you or wanting you to sort it out. He is just running to you with open arms and saying, actually, all I want to do is embrace you. All I want to do is have relationship with you. That is why we as a church believe in second chances, because we worship a God who believes in second chances. The absolutely scandalous thing about grace is that no matter what you have done, whether you're a younger brother and you've gone off and tried to do it your own way and tried to do it your own way and tried to do it your own way, or you're an older brother uh, and you're you're being too legalistic and you're stuck in, in that mindset, whichever way it is, God invites you into the party. The most incredible party you could ever be a part of. And the only criteria for that is that we turn back to him. Not that you fix it first, then turn back to him. Not that you sort this, this and this, or get this a bit of your life sorted out. Just that you turn back to him. And if we just jump back one slide, I just want to finish with those verses. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. 